We're in John chapter 7 today. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. will be where we'll spend most of our time. As you're turning there, how many of you have ever heard of Where's Waldo? You know what Where's Waldo is? Okay. Um, those books, there are these big old books, Where's Waldo books, where the artist draws all kinds of people, buildings, random things all over the pages. The page is just covered with stuff. And the point is for you to look and look and maybe look until you find this tall guy with a red and white stocking cap, big black rimmed glasses, a red and white striped shirt, horizontally striped, not vertically, throw you off. And of course, those blue jeans, some hiking boots, right? That's Waldo. You have to find Waldo. Where's Waldo? Of course, the artist put all kinds of other people, animals, anything else they could think of in similar colors, patterns, in the picture to throw you off. But eventually, if you tried hard enough, if you were patient, you could find him. And if you're sitting with a bunch of your buddies at school around this big book, hopefully you'd be the first to find Waldo. That's what we did anyways in school uh, back before we had our phones, right? And Fortnite and all that kind of stuff. So bless our hearts. How did we ever make it? Um, But what if you didn't read the instructions for Where's Waldo? There's always instructions at the beginning. Uh, What if you didn't pay attention to the cover of the book, which made it pretty obvious what what the goal was, what you were looking for? What if you thought Waldo was a short guy with like an orange collared shirt, khaki pants, and a baseball hat? probably take a long time to find him. And if you did find a guy like that in the picture, and if you're sitting with your buddies at school and you shouted, I found him, and pointed to that business casual man going to a baseball game, your friends probably look at you and wonder what's wrong with you, right? That's not Waldo. Now guess who chose what Waldo was going to look like? Guess who got to decide what Waldo looks like? Yeah, the artist. His creator, his maker, the guy that designed the book. We didn't get to choose what Waldo looked like, his maker did. And we're going to run into a similar, though much, much, much more significant problem today. And as we've seen so far in the Gospel of John, Jesus the Messiah has been walking, eating, teaching the words of God, doing miracles, and living right with and amongst his people, the Jews. People who would love to find their Messiah. And yet, very few seem to be finding him. And we've seen two motivations for their unbelief in John 6 and 7. As stated, as I already said in 1 John 2.16, the desire of the flesh, meaning selfishly held desires like food, drink, health, wealth, maybe even freedom from Rome. Basically people who are suffering from a severe case of the gimmies, Right? The desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes. The selfish desire to see and to be seen. And then when those do see me, that they find me wonderful. That they find me wonderful. Uh, This is judging by appearances. Of course, this self-centered desire results in the fear of man. Both the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes are rooted in pride. And they are bondage. They are slavery. They are blindness, deafness. A blindness that results in the inability to see your Messiah, even if he were to do a miracle right before your physical eyes. The inability to hear your Messiah, even if his words were to be spoken within range of your physical ears. 
This has been the response so far of the vast majority of the people that Jesus saw, that Jesus spoke to, that Jesus did miracles in front of. They've seen and they've heard Jesus, but seeing they have not seen and hearing they have not heard. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Most of the people uh, Jesus witnessed to and taught rejected him. It's weird to say be encouraged about that, but did that stop Jesus? Did he say, boy, this is not going as well as I'd hoped? Jesus wasn't sent to make converts, to convert people by intellectual manipulation, right? Jesus was sent to preach, to proclaim, and to die. And all that the Father gives him will come. Jesus succeeded in his mission, and so shall we. So last week... In the sermon last week, the leaders and the people rejected Jesus because he didn't come through their system, if you remember. He didn't have their theological training, their stamp of approval to be teaching. And any success, fans, meaning people rooting for him, right, and cheering him on, any success he would have in his teaching wouldn't really add any benefit, fans, to them or reflect their superiority and their excellence. He didn't look the part. He didn't bring anything to the table, their table. And then Jesus had the audacity to say that he was speaking on God's own authority. He didn't need their approval. And also because he told them that they'd failed to keep the law. There was that too. And they didn't like that very much. So Jesus' final statement that we saw last week from verse 24 is this. He said this, Do not judge by appearances the way you want things to look, but judge with right judgment, truth. So John 7, 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And you might remember, they they just called him a demon for thinking anyone was trying to have him killed up in verse 20. But then after Jesus reminds them of the healing of the man at the pool of Siloam, all of a sudden they remember the dialogue afterward, you know, the whole then they sought to kill him because he made himself equal with God thing. Is that what just happened? Well, maybe. Or they did know all along that Jesus was on the most wanted list, but they didn't want to look bad by publicly stating that, showing themselves to know what's really happening. So do you see here this fear-driven group think going on in this chapter? The Pharisees say something, the crowd all shifts this way, and then Jesus says something and the crowd all shifts that way. The crowd is going to say something here in a little bit and the Pharisees will have to respond in a way that saves their reputation. The only person who doesn't seem to be worried about his reputation in this narrative is guess who? Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's not worried about what they think about him. Now, what's the motivation for all this not-so-controlled chaos? What is the motivation for this group think, this shifting and posturing for the approval of man? It's fear. Fear. It's the fear of rejection, the desire for approval. Not God's approval, man's. So the crowd says... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And then verse 26, and here he is speaking openly. And they, our religious leaders, they say nothing to him. Remember, Jesus taught like no other man. 
He spoke with authority because he spoke the very words of God, uh, not constantly referencing other rabbis who had approved his message. Everyone there was amazed at his teaching style. His teaching style. Unfortunately, mostly just his style, but also his content. And so the crowd asks, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And if you're one of the rulers here right now, if you're one of the Jewish religious authorities hearing this and seeing all of this, what are you trying to put together in your mind? Probably like an official statement. We can't let these people get out ahead of us. We have to save our reputation. But before we get to see their official press release, the crowd drives their challenge even further. Verse 27. But we know... The crowd says, we know where this man comes from. He's a Galilean. He's from crummy old Nazareth. He's the son of a carpenter, for crying out loud. And then they say, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There's a whole lot that can be said about that. But first know that the purpose of this statement from the crowd, this is what they're really trying to say. They are denying the legitimacy of Christ's claim to be the Christ. They're saying, no way he's Jesus. No, no, he's Jesus. That's his first name, right? But no way he's the Christ. There's no way. So again, anyone today who would say that Jesus has never claimed to be the Christ, and there are people who would say that, that's entirely false. Even this crowd that couldn't ever seem to come to their own conclusions without each other's approval understood Jesus' claim to divinity and his role as the Christ quite well. And Jesus cannot be a good teacher or a moral guide if he is not the Son of God, God the Son, if he is not the Savior as he claimed to be. It's simply not possible. Does that make sense? Jesus said, I am God the Son. If that's not true, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. That's it, right? He has to be One of those three. Good teachers don't knowingly teach lies, nor do they rise from the dead, by the way. Morally perfect leaders don't lie. And outside of Christ, do morally perfect leaders exist? It's a good place to remember that this is C.S. Lewis that, that asserted this. Christ either has to be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. One of the three. There is no other possibility. So we are either right or we are wrong to surrender to his lordship and be saved. Right or wrong? And you have to choose. You have to choose. Will I surrender or not? To not choose, to try to abstain from choosing, to say, well, this doesn't really matter to me. This doesn't involve me. Is to ignore reality. To choose to ignore reality. If you refuse to look both ways before you cross the street... That doesn't mean there are no cars coming. Does that make sense? There's either a car coming or there isn't. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. It doesn't matter whether you feel like looking before you cross the street or not. If there's a car coming and it hits you, you will feel it. Right? And it won't matter if you're angry with the car. It won't make the pain go away. To look... And then respond to that reality. It's something you have to do. You have to look and respond to that reality or suffer the consequences 
they should come for not looking. A person who tries to refuse to choose whether Jesus is their Lord or not has chosen. And if you haven't affirmed, acknowledged, if you haven't submitted to Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have chosen. And up to this point, you have rejected him. Until you are alive, you are dead. Until you are freed, you are under condemnation. So please repent. If you have not put your faith in Christ, please repent and put your faith in him. Matthew 12.30, Jesus said this, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. There is no alternate reality. Follow Jesus. Worship and serve the King. And then, also, what comes to our mind, what comes to your mind when you read or hear the statement, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. The people asked this question or made this statement. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. What do you think about? Do you remember also in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus was born, Herod asked the chief priests and the scribes where the Messiah was to be born, didn't he? And they pointed him to Micah 5, 2, the prophecy from Micah. And it says this in Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, meaning eternity past. This is an eternally pre-existing God the Son who would take on flesh and then eventually rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And where will he be born? Bethlehem. So they did know. They did know where the Messiah was going to come from, right? Well, you might say they should, but if you can believe it, there was a disagreement in those days as to whether you could, how to interpret this kind of a passage, whether you could know where the Messiah was coming from. And how is that possible, you ask? Well, remember last week? Rabbi Joseph and Rabbi Ezekiel, remember those guys that were fictitious rabbis? Rabbi Ezekiel was busy teaching everyone about what Rabbi Joseph taught him, and he gave Rabbi Joseph all that credit, and Rabbi Joseph was like, yep, I taught him everything he knows. And he would say, as Rabbi Joseph always says, as Rabbi Joseph always taught, well, today we're going to hear from an actual rabbi, okay, a real one. And his name is Rabbi Zera, Z-E-R-A. And Rabbi Zerah wrote in a book called the Talmud. Maybe you've heard of the Talmud before. The Talmud is a commentary on a book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is a commentary on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. So it's a commentary of a commentary. So Rabbi Zerah is writing about what Rabbi so-and-so wrote about what the Bible says. You see that pattern again? Rabbi Ezekiel teaches what Rabbi... Joseph always taught him to teach people. Here it is again in book form, okay? In book form. And there's nothing wrong with the commentary, a good, accurate commentary, of course, until that commentary, whether good or bad, becomes seen as equal with or treated as a part of the scriptures. If it becomes that same level of scriptures as the word of God, which is what has been done and what was done with the Talmud and the Mishnah. It has and it is. So anyways, this is what Rabbi Zerah taught in the Talmud, a commentary on the Mishnah, 
a commentary on the Pentateuch. You ready? Here it is. Three come unawares. Messiah, a found article, like something you lost, now it's found, and a scorpion. You gotta watch out for those scorpions, they'll come out of nowhere, won't they? It sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? That's kind of what, what, this, what the feel of that was, like a proverb. But then, think of this now. The crowd here has just brought up a debate amongst these religious leaders. The chief priest told Herod that Micah clearly prophesied from the Messiah's birth that it would be in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem, sorry. And, so there's those people, those leaders who believe that, and then people have interpreted Rabbi Zerah and the Talmud is saying that no one will know where the Messiah comes from. And you have to feel bad for Rabbi Zerah a little bit, because I'm not sure that's even an accurate interpretation of what he wrote. So then it becomes what people think that he said about what he said about what the Bible says. And then we're really having a hard time, aren't we? Either way, we're in, a, we're in a sticky situation. What do we do? We have these leaders who disagree with each other. And when all we care about is other people approving of us and agreeing with us and not rejecting us, and there's disagreement, that renders us useless, doesn't it? And now they have this disagreement they got to deal with. And by the way, church, what do you do when someone's view, even when it's your own, contradicts the scriptures. What do, you, what do you go with? The scriptures. Exactly. God is always right. But what happens now? In the midst of these statements, these accusations in the crowd, there's this stirring up of a debate between these teachers. This crowd and the religious leaders may be in danger of getting into an argument about interpretations of the scriptures and interpretations of the Talmud, fearing their reputation, fearing their credibility, the approval of man, and the Messiah is right there in front of them. Right then. It's almost like they were more interested in arguing and voicing their opinions about the Messiah than they were interested in actually knowing him. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. And I think Jesus is saying this with some irony, kind of like, a, so you think you know where I'm from, do you? And it makes the most sense in the context because he's about to go way beyond Nazareth and way beyond Bethlehem when he says this. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not no, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Who sent Jesus down from heaven? All right, God the Father did. So then, what has Jesus said to all these religious people, these leaders, who have been working so hard at being good at being religious, worked so hard at being viewed as religious by all these other people, gathering their favor and positive opinions and approval. Jesus has declared to them in front of all of their friends, after interrupting their religious arguing and banter, you don't know God. And this is sad to say, because of what it means in the end, of course. But boy, if you want to make a man-centered, works-based, religious person angry... Tell them they don't know God. What do you think might happen? You say, well, probably something in the ballpark of what happens in verse 30. Probably wouldn't be very happy having that kind of true intervention 
with God. Verse 30 says this, So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Why weren't they successful in arresting him? Was Jesus elusive and super fast and hard to tackle? No. Maybe, but no. The all-powerful sovereign God wouldn't allow it. They wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't find the nerve in that moment to do it. Because God is sovereign. And it wasn't time for the cross yet. Verse 31, yet, all of a sudden, as if by some sort of miracle, right? Many of the people there believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And this seems to be genuine belief. These people aren't clamoring for signs themselves. They're not asking for full bellies and fat bank accounts. They aren't clamoring for the signs as much as they're wondering what those signs were pointing them to. And that was the true purpose of the signs in the first place. If Jesus was really just some guy off the street, fresh out of Galilee, showing up to Jerusalem, declaring to be the Messiah like so many others had before him, perhaps their patience should be short. But this man is healing people. He's feeding thousands. He's turning water into wine. And on and on. And now they hear his words and his teaching. Even when John the Baptist was in prison and discouraged, Jesus reassured him of who he was. Matthew eleven four to 6 He refers to John the Baptist to his miracles and his teaching. Jesus answered them. This is the passage, Matthew eleven four through 6 Jesus answered them, Go and tell John that you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus, in this encouragement for John the Baptist, was referring to Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, perhaps other passages as well that promised, that promised these miracles, that promised his message as indicators of the time of the Messiah. The signs weren't bad. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have performed them. It was the way people treated them selfishly in the flesh that was wrong. So now after this change of direction in the crowd, with this addition of a differing view, now that some are believing, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They want him too. They're thinking, we can't have these things being muttered. Uh, The pointless religious bantering we can handle. Clamoring for the praise of man we can appreciate. Throwing other people in need under the bus in order to get what you want is nothing to us. But believing that this is Jesus, this Jesus, the the one that uh, says we don't even know God, that he could be the Messiah? Impossible. Unacceptable. Arrest this man. And you don't arrest righteous people, do you? You arrest violators. You arrest sinners. And what was Jesus' sin? I am God the Son. You don't know God. He didn't approve of their false religion. That was his sin. And they didn't want to believe that he was who he said he was. Remember that Jesus said to his brothers up in verse 7 in this chapter, 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Verse 33. Jesus then said to the ones here who have publicly called for his arrest, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. This is the key verse, I think, in this passage. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that will not find him? And this isn't being asked in sincerity. They're, they're scoffing at Jesus. This is rude sarcasm. They say, does he, does he attend to go to the dispersion? All the Jews scattered amongst the Greeks so he can go teach the Greeks as if they would even care about his claim to be the Messiah? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Well, they don't get it, do they? But let's answer their questions. Jesus is telling these people, the leaders and the crowd alike, that he isn't staying around for much longer. He, he's going back to the right hand of the Father. Uh, this celebration of the Feast of Booths that's happening in John 7, it was happening just about six months before Passover. The Passover where he would be crucified. So he's not, he really is not going to be there much longer. And Jesus is telling these people, they are going to be looking for their Messiah. But they are not going to be able to find him. And they won't be joining their Messiah, therefore, in heaven. They're not going to be joining him in heaven. You are either for him or against him. Why won't they find him? Why won't they find their Messiah? Well, evidently Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He wasn't good enough. Didn't have the right wow factor. And what was the right wow factor? Tell me how amazing I am. He wasn't their kind of Messiah. He didn't match their criteria. You know, someone who looked and talked and acted a lot more like them. Someone who didn't tell them of their sin and their need for his coming death on the cross to die in their place, but instead someone who would reassure them, give them approval, make them feel good about who they were and how they were doing in their keeping of the law, reinforcing how good they should feel about how much better they were than everybody else. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if an eyewitness of a crime gave every description to a sketch artist at the police station? The sketch artist drew everything perfectly, so much so that the witness mouth just drops open when they see the finished product and they declare, that's the guy! How did you do that? And then the detective comes over and says, oh, that guy looks too good. He looks way too nice. That's not a criminal. Let's put some scars on his forehead. Let's give him an eye patch. He looks way too healthy. Let's sink in those cheeks a little more. There we go. That's better. That's our criminal. Let's go get him. Bad move, right? Bad police work there, would you agree? And those officers, they might go looking for their bad guy, but they're never going to find him. Does that make sense? So, question, what kind of Messiah are you looking for? Who is your kind of Christ? 
And while we might all have different answers if we're being totally honest, there is only one that we truly need. And our creator, our designer, our maker knows exactly what we truly need. Our God is a good father. And he doesn't give us everything we want because if we got everything we want, it would destroy us. But he does give us everything that we need. And we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need a Messiah that was born without sin. We need a Messiah that lived a sinless life. We need one that died a sinner's death on the cross in our place. We need a Savior so that we might live and be forgiven and counted as righteous through his shed blood. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you see him? Do you hear his words? Have you found him? And if you're here today and you just did, if you're here today and you just did, if God just opened your heart and your eyes to your need of a Savior, and you've come to see that Jesus is the Christ, having given himself up for you at the cross, put all your hope, all of your trust in him today, now, and be saved. Confess your sin, ask for his faithful and promised forgiveness, and become a child of God now. And for all of us who know Christ, who have seen and believed, all of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, let's be faithful to continue to tell others. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I think that there is one more thing that we can apply to ourselves, Christians, church, principally from this passage. Who knows what's best for us? Who knows what we need? Have we been given gifts by the Spirit to indulge ourselves? So we got to be careful that we're not looking for everything else in life, whether it be a church, whether it be a ministry, whether it be a group of neighbors, whether it be a job, whether it be our family, whatever it might be. What kind of family are you looking for? What kind of a church are you looking for? What kind of a spouse are you looking for? And if you're waiting until you find one that's just exactly what you want, and until you find everything that you want, it'll never be good enough for you, you'll be looking for Waldo just as long as that guy who thinks he's wearing an orange shirt and khaki pants and a baseball hat. And you'll be looking just as long as the, the detective who changed the sketch artist's work. Because God made you for his good pleasure. And Christ humbled himself and served you. And we've been called to be like him. God's given you to the church. God's given you to your family. Give of yourself. Sacrifice of yourself for the benefit of others. That's what we need. And God is good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.
God, you showed your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you that you, knowing everything and having all power, you give us exactly what we need. And you promise, even the stuff that we would hate and despise, the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that make us hurt in this life, you have promised to use every one of those things for our good to conform us into the image of Christ, something we need. God, I pray that you would help us in our hearts and our minds to be thankful for the work that you are doing and that you have promised to do in and through us and for us and for the good of those that you've put us with. Lord, may we seek and desire to give you all honor and glory and praise in the life that you've given to us. And we thank you for your promise to raise us up again, that we get to enjoy you forever, that you will be with us, you will be our God, and we will be your people. God, may we this week seek to love people and seek to honor you in the things that we think, say, and do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.